I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch, you know. You know. Hey, Peter. Hey. Uh, uh, I want to say Aaron. Yeah. Well, it's going to be very confusing that you're referencing uh, the fact that you've forgotten my name because we haven't spoken in so long. Because yeah. to anyone hearing this, this they're going to hear this the first week of February. We're recording this the first week of January after having not recorded since the first week of December. Yeah, not confusing at all. Um, I was I, I was I out of years. I heard old Lang Syne, and I sure I heard should old acquaintance be forgot. And you're an old acquaintance, so here's the problem: with I forgot that. the shit out of you. The the next line is and never brought to mind. And mm. unfortunately, because of our podcast schedule, I was brought right to your mind <laughs> through <laughs> Skype. A couple days later. No, no, not my mind. That's where I do my things. We're just coming right into that mind. Just get right up in there. Not my mind. That's where I watch pornography. Oh, that's the best place to watch it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just imagining it, really. Mm -hmm. Inserting yourself into scenes. Please don't use the word insert. <laughs> Thank you. are welcome. Uh, which is, you know what? It's a perfect transition that we're talking about uh, the, the one man's love of imagining pornography because it's February to you, the listener, and we, we got we have a new month on our podcast. Now, if you've never heard our podcast before where we love to watch, we like we like talking about movies in a orderly and organized <laughs> fashion. All right. Not chaos. We don't like talk about eight movies in one episode uh, all at once. No, we we focus on one movie. In one specific grouping that we have organized through PowerPoint presentations, Excel spreadsheets, and uh, I shouldn't even say this, the government. Yeah. And say what you will about We Love to Watch, but, you know, the the, the, the podcasts run on time. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so hard. But, yeah, yes, uh, we're, we're, we're uh, liberal in our politics. And fascist in our show's organizational structure. Um, and, and this month, when we love to watch, it's a new month. It's February. Love is in the air. But not just any love. Smelly fish love. We're doing <laughs> <laughs> love. Love and monsters. Movies about people that fall in love with uh, non-humans. And we are doing uh, today The Shape of Water. And we, we're going to have a couple other fun selections coming up uh, later this month that you'll yeah, hear about the right end of the that, show. We're going to have What Women Want. Yep. <laughs> that, that's really falling in love uh, with with a true, true monster. Uh, so I'm very excited. Uh, we we got a chance to watch this in theaters. That's why we're recording it so early because we we, we it's it's our first uh, Del Toro movie that we've done on the show. I know Peter and I are both big fans. How is that possible? You know, it's. I think we like saving stuff that we want, and and Del Toro is such a perfect candidate for their, for so many different organized and orderly <laughs> <laughs> um, that we don't want to just throw them in there. It feels like we'd be uh, shooting our load. Uh, 
it's true that when we first started this podcast, we were like, we got to save some stuff. But we we are fast approaching 100 episodes. I think we could just do stuff we want to talk about going well, forward. After Romero died, we were like, oh, we should do some Romero movies that people don't think of. And then I think you brought up the idea. You're like, wait, why are we holding on to Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead? Like, why are we holding yeah. on to the dead movies? And I was like, <laughs> you're get, right. We, we only get to do 12 of these a year. Like, we're only hitting 50 episodes. Even if we do it for 10 more years, uh, that's, that's only 600 more movies or something like that. Like, we... we that, yeah. But, yeah. That math seems right. We're not FX. We don't have the movies. Yeah, we, we have some we, of the movies. We borrow the movies. We borrow the movies. <laughs> because we're socialist in our politics. You can't own a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah. this one legally, anyways. Yeah, it's uh, true. That's what, so, I went to theater. So, uh, because both Peter and I forgot, uh, we haven't recorded in a month, and we forgot about segments and preparing them, because neither of us were organized. <laughs> <laughs> And orderly. Uh, definitely not my idea, which was just to go, Seggies! And then be quiet for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to talk about uh, seeing a movie in, in the theater. Because uh, we've never... We've we've never done that before for this episode... Or for this podcast, which is only, I guess, um, half true. So, uh, Peter... I uh, saw High Rise in the theaters uh, when it was our 10th episode and we did High Rise. It was in the theaters when we recorded it. You saw it in theaters. I watch it on demand. Uh, and a lot of people, Peter, think that really the, the true way to experience a movie is in is in the theater. So I'm actually happy to announce this is our first episode of the podcast. Wow. Officially. Officially. Fish. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it sucks that we've never watched a movie before because we... Uh, well, you have. Yeah, I watched... This is, I guess, the second movie I've ever seen for the show. <laughs> yeah, this is the first time both the Watchbys came together as one in, in a uh, some sort of school yeah. and flowed in the same direction. A, a few people know that we've watched every last one of the uh, movies before now uh, on Apple Watches. Oh, yeah, especially the IMAX ones. <laughs> <laughs> How big is an IMAX Apple Watch? Oh, it's a little bigger. <laughs> like a centimeter. I don't want to make you learn metric. That's fine. Don't go crazy. According to some standards, we, we've never really seen that many movies for the show. This will be the second one that we've actually seen because watching movies at home is a bastardization of the form. So, it, it was funny. And that's kind of why I want to get into it a little bit. I'm not one of those people. I don't care about seeing movies in theaters it's nice nice to go nice to go out comedies are big you get to laugh with a crowd as opposed to no one if you're watching a movie by yourself that can really amplify that but you know seeing this movie especially kind of brought up that idea because i was the only one in the theater which was nice for note taking for the podcast where i was sitting comparative to the screen like i'm no mathematician but based on the screen and my house and how close the couch is, I would imagine the difference to my eyes isn't that great. Because I chose a, a seat near the back in case I could sneak notes. Because uh, notes are very important to our organized <laughs> orderly <laughs> podcast. Uh, but but so it, it really kind of struck me watching it this time, uh, especially having... Um, a lot of people, people I like, people I respect, uh, seems like more and more there's there's tome poems and uh, 
and propaganda and and uh, <laughs> manifestos about how uh, theaters are dying and it sucks and that's the true way to experience a movie. And I just, you know, I was like, yeah, it's, it's not that I don't like seeing movies in theaters, but I don't, I don't feel like I'm missing all that much. And in some ways, I may be missing less because uh, I, I'm, I'm 34. I sometimes have to pee in the middle of movies, and at home, I get to pause them, and at the movies, when I've requested it before, they don't listen. It is somewhat notable that uh, I made it through all of Last Jedi without having to go to the bathroom, because I, I don't- I did once. I don't know if I've done that in any movie. Like, anything over 90 minutes, I don't know if I've actually made it through. Uh, I peed during It, Alien Covenant, like, every other movie I've seen this year. You peed during It? Yeah. I peed during It. <laughs> During what? Uh, I peed during it. Oh, the sex? (laughs) This is our who's on first, and it sucks. (laughs) Yeah, uh, cancel that bit. Uh, uh, Yeah, no, I I actually made it through all of this movie, amazingly, uh, but the last half hour, I was thinking about, A, how great the movie is, and also, uh, this movie has too much water in it in the last half hour, and I'm dying. I need to go pee. It's all rain, all water. It was a nightmare. And I'm like, well, I can't. There's no spot here to go. This is the climax. And the movie might as well just fucking throw in a bucket of water on me at that point. Because it was it was constantly. It was the last half hour. This movie's wetter than fucking Noah's last half hour. <laughs> Do you think that shitty movies should start implementing a lot of uh, like drippiness and and pee springs and such uh, to make people uh, leave to go to the bathroom so they miss more of the movie? Well, I didn't tell you this, but I actually saw this movie in 4D. So, uh, halfway through the movie... Name all the Ds? Yeah. The <laughs> um, uh, Big D, little D, what begins with D? The uh, No, it was weird because they just kept like, anytime there was a lovemaking scene, uh, some uh, usher walked down the aisle and threw fresh fish into each... Cheer. <laughs> it's low budget 4D. They have the recliner seats. They have the budget for all the other stuff, but it was, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a. I went. I once went and saw the Bugs Life ride at Epcot, maybe. And Did you get to ride it or you just saw other people enjoying themselves? <laughs> it is a show ride. Yeah, so the you 4D, sit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, behind you, at one point, uh, at one point uh, bugs are supposed to scurry. Um, so, like, a bug goes, like, along the back of the bench and, like, bumps your butt, uh, while you're sitting there, and all I could think about were the sexual implications of this particular device. <laughs> you think those bugs are making union fees? <laughs> union rates? I mean, they're working in a danger zone. I mean, ooh, ooh, ooh. one guy with a, a big old butt, and they have them at Disneyland. I've seen them before. They, they, they just crush them dead. Not to mention the smell down there. Oh, my God. They're not stink bugs. They're just regular bugs. So they smell good. So they smell great. <laughs> I think it's good to always phrase stuff as, oh, and the smell down there. Ugh. Great. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, here's the other factor when it comes to theaters for me, besides the fact that at this point, my TV screen and the movie theater screen is not doesn't feel too far off as it would have, say, 20 years ago. Here's the other factor. I have a kid. I don't get to watch that many movies. A lot of times the trip to the theater and coming home, buying popcorn, waiting through previews, all that kind of stuff, like, it ends up being like a three, three and a half hour experience, which 
to me, if I have that time, I'm like, man, I could get two movies in at home. Yeah. Uh, so it, that's a factor too. So I just, I don't tend to be, um, I don't tend to be the biggest purist uh, when it comes to theaters. When people, I know sometimes they float to this idea of like, oh, if you want to see a big studio release, same day as it's in theaters, maybe it's 75 bucks, maybe it's 50 bucks, and you can do on demand. I got to tell you, I would probably do that a decent amount uh, for some really big ones I do really want to see, but just, you know, just have trouble making the time to go see it in the theaters um and that's obviously it's the numbers like, aren't that crazy i think if you're going with your wife or oh yeah you have to get a babysitter or anything 75 yeah. is not that ridiculous you get popcorn you get some candy you get pop um you know three movie tickets you you are paying like uh 75 bucks i we took her to we took our daughter to go see the lion king and like it was like 70 bucks between tickets and treats and and all that kind of uh all that kind of stuff so it's not so it's not that i don't like it it's it's a fun experience taking my daughter i love i love uh you know having like a day off to myself and going and seeing like three or four movies that you've been dying to see that are still in theaters um i love the couple times i've got to do any sort of like movie marathon i love going to kind of the retro screenings we have a couple theaters around here that do that and seeing like something like texas chainsaw massacre and on the big screen so it's not that i don't love going to theaters but i don't i don't have that same idea of um purism that the best way to experience uh, a movie is on the big screen and if you don't see it that way, you're missing out on something. What What are your thoughts on that, Peter? Um, the weird thing is there – I think there's definitely a bar you have to reach for your home experience to be uh, like as good as a movie theater. And it's not the size Which bar? of the screen. The bar is like have a decent-sized television. It doesn't have to be – and it doesn't have to be 4K. It just has to be like a, a somewhat decent television, not like an old CRTV. Yeah. Um, you need to probably either have headphones in or a decent sound bar, I think. Um, and a lot of people don't have that and they watch it on their laptop. And like the weird thing is like I used to make fun of that. My laptop screen is a sharper resolution than a lot of TVs I've seen. Yeah. You put that right in your fucking face. It's like the same thing. I, I can't totally make fun of like I any kind of people who watch like a big budget movie on their phone because like that is – that is you unless you have the thing right up to your fucking nose like you can't yeah you can definitely not see that much definition but like I, that's the weird thing is i used to have like this a uh, higher bar for what a, an experience is and then i realized that like a lot of the screens that we have that are alternate i thought of like shitty old computer screens i'm really not thinking of how modern laptops are great looking too and how ipad screens and, and yeah um, and uh windows tablet screens whatever that windows tablet thing is called the surface the surface has a beautiful screen too like i haven't thought i hadn't thought about that till recently and like i uh so it's still i i think that the, the bar the bar for it is funky i still don't think you should watch movies on your phone I think you should try and get some decent headphones or decent sound bar so you can appreciate it from that aspect as well. But if you don't, like, that's also that it's kind of elitist to say that somebody has to have like this fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred dollar setup with a four K TV and a Blu Ray player and a you yeah. know three hundred dollar sound system. Like that's that's a I think that's sort of an elitist thing to say. The thing I do like about the movies, particularly, and I think years go on, it gets better and better. I think we are, as a culture, getting worse at watching stuff without distractions. Like, even movies I love, I'll catch myself looking at my phone during. So, I've started, like, inst instituting, like, a put my cell phone in the other room 
for a uh, rule for movies, especially for mm-hmm. the show. That's why you take notes during those movies by tattooing them um, all over your skin like memento. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm only You're allowed like, to num- take number eight. Remember the fish fuckings. <laughs> I have to be very good at shorthand because uh, my notes are now overriding each other. Um, oh, yeah. You look like you need a bath. Uh, I think that there is definitely a elitism in saying uh, a lot of the minimum standards for it. But there is a minimum standard somewhere. I think you kind of know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I went from DVD to Blu-ray, I wasn't like, I've never seen this movie before. I was like, oh... This movie looks much better, and there's details I'm noticing bef- now that I didn't notice before. I do have a big TV. I have a 65-inch and a 70-inch 4K TVs. You know, I have Blu-ray players, stuff like that. So, and I understand that, that that obviously changes the dynamic for me personally when it comes to how much it differs from seeing in theaters. But when it comes to, like, the resolution and stuff like that, too, you know, where you're watching digital projection, it's, it's not too different from seeing stuff on on a blu-ray or a 4k like it does it it's not like the old days where they were literally taking the film reels and showing them up there and you it does have a different feel when you hear the click clack and you see the the marks and stuff like that and that's not that's not what you're getting anymore and that's fine it's great that we're seeing these kind of uh, digital clear masterpieces but it 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 removes the separation to me a lot more of of seeing something in theaters and seeing something at home. Yeah, and like I was saying, through the distraction thing, I really love going to the theater for that reason. I really love the idea that it is this chamber that you can pe- get people kicked out of theaters for not observing. That that, that they people aren't supposed to talk. They're not supposed to be loud. They're not supposed to be on their cell phones. They're not supposed to like throw shit at the screen. Like you can get people removed from the theater for not making it this perfect experience. And just just to let you know, Peter, if if people do that at your home too, you can also remove them (laughs) from your home. Like if people are throwing shit at your screen, I mean, you don't really even need to call anyone. You can just stand up and go get out and. You can pause the movie while you do that. <laughs> um, I, I think I think that it is important to note that there is a magic to go seeing stuff at the theaters, especially like seeing it with a crowd. Like seeing Get Out with a crowd was so fun. Illusionist prestige, yeah, magic. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, get uh, out. Now you see get me, out the sequel. Now you don't. Yeah, that's not what they called it, and that's why that movie bombed at the box office. Thankfully, the Mamma Mia sequel. Not making that same mistake has the best fucking sequel title that they could have chosen. Is it called Here We Go Again? Yeah, it is. It's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good, Mamma Mia. Would not give up um, anything to, uh, you know, have lost my, like, favorite theaters in the world. I love the idea that when I go back to Chicago, I can see, like, I can go to the music box. Like, I'm actually considering going back to the music, flying back, uh, to the music box next October for uh, music box of horrors this year. It couldn't work in October this year, but I think this, uh, it couldn't look work in October last year, but I think this year it might work. Cause I just love the idea of getting this crowd together of people that are super enthusiastic about something and that you can feel the energy in the room. Yeah. Special event stuff is super important. That stuff's great. I love seeing comedies like an opening night in a theater. So I, I hope I, I hope I was, clear that it's not that i'm like theaters are dumb for 
something like The Shape of Water and a lot of movies that I do go see in theaters when I get a chance, it's, you know, I, I tend to be maybe one or two other people in a theater. And depending on the movie it is, it just doesn't feel like that different. So uh, one final point, I think, about it uh, in particular is I do think I'm harsher on movies when I go see them in theaters. Because you had to put on pants. Because I had to put on pants. Uh, though it, it, it does make movies more immersive. It does make them more special. Yeah. Um, I think when a movie... Because you have pants tr- on. Because I have pants on. That's a, This is a rare situation for me. Um, <laughs> there's two There's two sites for rating movies just based on that. There's Letterboxd, and that's if you watch it at home, and then Letterpants, <laughs> when you put on pants and you go see the movie. Much friendlier scores, I think, generally. But I do think that my lows are lower with, uh, with the theater experience because the uh, idea that, like, I had to plan out part of my day, go drive somewhere, and the movie is so much louder, and I can't really leave, like... All of that combines where if a movie, a bad movie is bad in a theater, like I yeah. hate it so much more than at home where I just be like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It was, a, it was a movie when it was when there when you do occasionally see something that is truly bad in theaters. It's like it burns your mind. Like there are probably much worse movies than Flight Plan. But I remember being stuck in a theater seeing Flight Plan in 2008 or whatever, where I was just like miserable. This is fucking miserable. Yeah, it feels like it's been a long time since I've seen a movie in a theater that I didn't like, but definitely happened a lot in college and and high school where – college and high school was where I was going to theaters a ton because – it, it was something – it was like something to do with friends, but it was in that age where you didn't have enough responsibility that that you didn't have to not hang out with your friends all night. You had all the energy and stuff like that. And also, I don't know if it's the same thing for you, Peter, but like people just had plans every night of the week with friends. Like especially in college. I just remember those first couple of years, it was like – it wasn't like you just hung out on the weekend. It was like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a Tuesday. What are we doing Tuesday night? And because there wasn't uh, the parties or go to a bar later on, like two weeknights if you were making plans was a good time to go see movies in theater. So I just – I saw everything in high school and college with friends and organizing big trips and small trips. And then I saw everything when I was in junior high, too, because uh, I could bike to the theater. I didn't really have a job, and we had, like, a free movie pass that I could see any movie with. So I saw, like, everything that was under the rating of R in theaters from, like, 96 to 98, too. So, uh, you know, so I I was probably seeing more bad movies in theaters, uh, you know, pre-2005 than even not having a kid. Because it was like, well, if I'm going to make the trip out... It's going to be a movie that I'm excited about, and it's just very rare that, you know, that you're stuck in a flight plan situation or a don't say a word situation would be my yeah my example. So I, uh, I'll never tell any of you. I'll never tell. <laughs> and especially now that so many theaters have beer, it's like so nice. We're like, oh yeah. Especially if you're rushing to get yeah, to the recliner theater. seats. Oh, the new seats. And like, if you're rushing to get to the theater and then like you get there and you realize you have like a little more time than if you're, if you're built like me and a rather anxious person, you get to the no. theater with more than enough time to get a beer. Oh, see, that's why I love reserve seating. It's reserve seating thing. is great. It's and the, the theater near me, the one I saw shape water. It's reserve seating. It's the big recliner seats. They have a bar. <laughs> It's I love great. that you reserved seating to be the only person. The, oh, the only person? Yeah, well, what, that's why when I bought my ticket, I'm like, well, uh, let me see. Uh, what I want to do 
is find that person who has who has bought the ticket to the showing that night. He's the only one, and then buy the ticket right next to him. <laughs> I've never been able to pull that off because I've always only been in fully full theaters, and I've only been in one empty theater ever in my life, and it wasn't reserved seating. But I would love to do that. You just go to like a real piece of shit in like week eight, and you're like, the studio's like, we don't know when to pull it. You <laughs> and one alcoholic that just doesn't have air conditioning anymore. Yeah, it's it's the best. And yeah, the reserved seating just be like, yeah, well. You're D3, I'm D4. What do you want to do about it? <laughs> you want to get kicked sir, out? Sir. <laughs> I like my movie seating orderly <laughs> and organized. <laughs> but, and I'll also, I'm getting better at going to movies alone, but I didn't go to Crimson Peak because no one would see it with me. I didn't want to go see it alone. That's the only uh, Del Toro movie I have not seen yet. Uh, so let's, hey, guess what? Why not fucking transition then into a Del Toro movie that we both have seen? The movie called The Shape of Water. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> we got a lot of old Catskills things going on this episode. <laughs> and none of them work. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Shape of Water. Talk about the shape of water, a movie both of us gave zero stars to because they didn't tell us what the fucking shape was. Uh, it's a good joke, I think. <laughs> no one's made, I don't think anyone's made a joke about uh, that yet. So I, we're going to be the first and we're going to get all the accolades, I imagine. Be The movie could be taglined um, Fish Fucker Fucks Baltimore. He doesn't fuck all of them. <laughs> well, well the fish fucker is would be not the fish man see that's the thing you, i mean you're making a big logic jump that he's fucked fish in the in the amazon <laughs> that he's come from, but we don't know Listen, the only you, thing that we're totally. sure of is that he's had sex with um sally hawkins so it is a it's a human fucker movie yeah but i think she's the fish fucker yeah no if you're referring to her she is definitely a fish fucker yeah so uh fish fucker takes baltimore how about um you wanted a sequel to hellboy legally not that well we know what's really funny i'll talk about this now uh so this movie started as uh del toro was gonna remake a creature of the black lagoon uh, because he saw it as a kid, loved it, wished the two, uh, the, the 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 creature and the and the woman in that movie got together at the end. Which uh, I've never seen Creature of the Black Black Lagoon, although I did read a book about it in elementary school. And from my understanding, that is one of those monster kidnaps a lady situation. But Del Toro saw that and said, "Sorry, these kids can't make it work." So when he did his uh, when he was going to remake that for Universal, that was his pitch. And Universal said, how about we don't do that or ever <laughs> make your movies again? And we're going to tell all the other studios how hard it's going to be. Uh, so he didn't get to do that. And so he's like, okay, how about I do do that, though, and just not call it Creature uh, from the Black Lagoon. So we actually had discussed covering Creature uh, from the Black Lagoon uh, this month. Um, I'm kind of glad we decided not to because I really like our picks. But essentially, this is 
This is Del Toro's version of Creature of the Black Lagoon, except they do fuck uh, consensually uh, in, in, in this one. Also, Del Toro calls this his first adult movie, that he has basically spent the last nine movies making movies about his childhood hopes, dreams, uh, fears, underlined and circled. And this is his first uh, – movie where he is purposely making a movie about some of his thoughts and feelings that he has as an adult. Um, I found that very interesting. And also like going back through his, his filmography made a lot of sense. Yeah. This movie does feel in its own way um, like Del Toro returning to themes that I think are prevalent in all of his movies. Um, it does feel weirdly, weirdly enough, like the closest spiritual sequel to Pan's Labyrinth he's ever gotten. Yeah. A, a sort of fantasy world and how people in a period piece are reacting to fascism. And, you know, there's a central violent fascist figure. And it's, it's sort of this dark urban fantasy. Like, it's it's very much feels like the, the movie that if you loved Pan's Labyrinth, but you were disappointed with a lot of uh, Guillermo del Toro's American movies, uh, I feel like this is a true return to form for him. Well, and also one thing that's funny... Is that he has said about Pan's Labyrinth is that he wanted to make a movie about America in Spanish. Like he didn't want to he didn't want to be too clear that his that the movie itself was actually kind of about uh, America, which makes sense. It comes out in 2006. You're talking the height of Iraq war at the time we thought kind of very uh, encroaching fascism of the Bush administration. And he you know, that movie, while it's about, uh, you know, about Spain felt like uh, his kind of meta commentary on America and he said he said that in interviews and this time he definitely was like oh i'm just going to make a movie about america now in english cuz this movie does feel like a commentary on 2016 2017 it feels like a commentary on the past decade i think but it yeah. just arrives at such a beautiful time it's like a thing of comfort in such a uh, awful time as right now with Trump in the office and, you know, Nazis marching in the streets and, and uh, the world feeling like oppression of people of color, of uh, LGBT people. It's like getting louder. Like it's this does not appear to be slowing down. Um, even trying, yeah. to, even trying to take away like the Civil Rights Act of the sixties. Like we don't need it anymore. <laughs> when when they uh, overturned parts of the Voting Rights Act, the Supreme Court's like majority decision was was literally like, yeah, we needed it then, not now. The Southern states are fine, uh, and I I feel like if they would have made that, I think that was I want to say 2013 or 2014 that decision came down. I know it was uh, after the 2012 election and before the 2016. I feel like that was like a wink and a nod, like we everyone can take this seriously. Racism is solved. We don't need this anymore. If that case would have went before them in 2017, it would have been like everyone would have been like, "Fuck you." No way. See, you can't say that racism uh, is solved. But anyways. But yeah, so Aaron, what's the what's the plot of this movie? A lot of people have been talking about it. If you haven't seen it, we are going to spoil the whole thing. Uh, let's just get it out of the way. Richard Jenkins is really good. <laughs> uh, and someone makes a sweet, sweet love to a fish. Man, it really is making love. It is not fucking. So all these people you hear saying, oh, this is a movie where someone fucks a fish. Yeah, maybe try it. They're making love. <laughs> Aaron, I have to ask, um, 
Have you ever dated a fish? Dated? <laughs> it was the gentlest way I can say it, but I'm pretty sure you know what I mean. Uh, no, have I ever made love to a fish? Yeah, copulated, however you... I made uh, love to three out of the eight members of the band Fish, um, and they're very tender. <laughs> so, yeah, 90 second recap. Uh, so Sally Hawkins uh, plays kind of a she's she's mute. She lives in this apartment building in the 60s uh, that kind of looks like a Bioshock apartment. Um, and that's actually going to become important later uh, as, a, as a good reference point as we kind of talk about uh, the two very unique visual styles in this movie. She lives next to Richard Jenkins, which we uh, later learn is kind of a closeted gay man. Who has uh, had a falling out in his job, and those two are kind of best buds, you know, kind of two people that have been uh, had parts of society in the '60s turn their back on them. And she works in this secret government type lab with scientists, and uh, they bring in very quickly. Uh, and she's friends with Octavia Spencer, who also they're 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 kind of janitors uh, who clean up the the lab. And the quarters, and very quickly in the movie, they bring in a, a fish monster that they have found in the Amazon. They're doing some research on. Michael Shannon is the security who works with the for the government, uh, works with the with the general, playing Michael Shannon, playing an awesome Michael Shannon. <laughs> uh, but but like all of his worst monster qualities, they kind of go very hard on. Oh no, he's a monster just in every possible way that we could think of. He's not just he's not just kind of a you know crypto fascist and um, patriotism above all else. Like he's also uh, racist. He's also uh, you know a rapist essentially. <laughs> like they they really double down on. Michael Shannon, underline, circle, write your name three times on the board, put a check mark, you're a monster. Um, so she, uh, Sally Hawkins, immediately kind of starts getting curious about this creature, starts trying to communicate with him through like giving him his lunch, uh, eventually she's playing music for him, and they develop a bond uh, while she kind of is trying to go into back her day. And, and as she says this later to Richard Jenkins, who, um, that, you know, this is someone else who can't talk and com can't communicate. So she kind of has this connection as this. Um, she recognizes uh, the fish man. Um, his 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 he's credited as, as as amphibian guy, which is a very weird credit. But uh, uh, she, uh, you know, she starts to see a connection, and when she just wants to get him out of there. And meanwhile, uh, there's another guy uh, played by Michael Stuhlman, who's a Russian spy. He's not in the first 45 minutes, but you you see him all of a sudden show up. I would say, um, much like on his titular album about uh, coming alive, Peter Frampton comes alive. I would say the last hour of this movie, Stuhlman comes alive. Um, and, and he uh, starts helping Sally. I'm just saying the actors' names. Don't care. Uh, he starts helping Sally to, because uh, he's been instructed to kill, kill the the fish man so that the Americans can't study it. Uh, Michael Shannon gets permission to vivisect it because uh, they're trying to figure out how this fish man with gills can help him in the space race. Uh, they she steals the fish man, takes him back to her apartment, falls in love. Uh, later they bang. Uh, and, uh, meanwhile, Michael Shannon, of course, is, uh, getting ridiculed by the general, basically says, I'm gonna make you disappear if you don't find the fish man. He goes completely fucking Michael Shannon nuts. Um, 
And eventually, uh, after uh, tracking Stoolman and killing him, uh, finds out that uh, that she doesn't. Sally Hawkins, uh, in fact, does have the Fishman and tries to stop her from releasing him into the um, into the river, which they've been waiting for the rains. So the uh, so the what's it called? The yeah, like the the, the channel the the channel yeah fills up with water so that he can go back to the ocean because uh, he needs salt. Uh, blah blah blah. And uh, and Michael Shannon tries to stop them, uh, shoots. We should also say that the Fishman is, like, worshipped as a god and has regenerative powers of some sort. He can heal himself. He can heal other people. Uh, so he – Michael Shannon shoots the Fishman, shoots Sally Hawkins, uh, gets killed himself. And then the Fishman dives uh, into the water with Sally Hawkins and, uh, and breathes new life into her and uh, – she had again. This is terrible. This is terrible storytelling. But I forgot that she also had three uh, slits on her neck that no one knew what they were. And uh, after she gets an underwater kiss from the fish man, they turn out to be gills. End of story and end of fairy tale. And this really, uh, it's been sold as an adult fairy tale. It is absolutely that. And I fucking loved it. I fucking loved it, too. Movie that is getting a ton of good press right now. We are not going to diverge from that. Um, It's kind of fun for once to be part of that. Uh, Because I don't... uh, We haven't done that many super current movies that were still out and being talked about. Uh, I think High Rise is it. Yeah, and High Rise, we were definitely at a at a end of the spectrum that it feels like most people were not at that we we were this movie's great it was my number one movie of the year for a while i know you loved it and it felt like the general reaction to that was either i didn't really like this it's not like the book or this was fine with a few outliers loving it a few outliers hating it but this feels like we're going to be part of the – we're going to be straight down the middle of the conversation on this one. The last couple of Guillermo del Toro movies have been device among people. I've loved everything he's made except for The Strain. It's not a movie, Peter. <laughs> we talk about we talk about movies on this podcast. He put his name all fucking over it and it's not good. Well, uh, FX did and they have the movies. They have the movies. And they also have Guillermo del Toro's name. Yeah. I don't blame them for making it. Because uh, the idea of a Guillermo del Toro zombie or you know zombie vampire show is an amazing idea, but it's not good. But let's talk about all the great stuff he's done before. I am personally my favorite movie of his is a, probably no one else's favorite of all of this, but Blade Two. It's Blade Two. Um, Blade Two is a movie that's very very near and dear to my heart. I think it's one of the best like action horror movies. It's a comfort movie, which I can also say about Hellboy One and Two. I've definitely had days where I've watched all three of those like uh i had i got food poisoning uh almost a year ago and that day i watched those three and just like laid on the couch and they were my only comfort the whole day and it just made me feel so so much better well let's go let's go through this filmography really quickly because this is his 10th movie and he's been making movies since 1993 so we're not talking about like a wide swath of movies we got chronos great Mimic, which is fine. Kind of want to see the director's cut. Devil's Backbone, which I am on the fine end of the spectrum on, which I know most people are not. But it's – it. I don't know. It, it didn't blow me away. Um, 
Blade 2, which I love, Hellboy, which I love, Pan's Labyrinth, which, which I love, uh, Hellboy 2, which I love even more than all those other ones I just said, a Pacific Rim, which I really like, and Crimson Peak, which I haven't seen. So it's a, it's a small group. It's not like a cute Kubrick thing where he didn't make that many movies, but wasn't really like always trying to make movies. Like very often Kubrick was just like, oh, I'm, I'm moving slow. Del Toro's other job besides making movies is uh, unsuccessfully making movies. He's my favorite working director is uh, sort of bearing the lead there. Um, I love kind of everything he's done as a film. The Mimic, I would love to see a director's cut of. That there is one. It's on and Amazon. I'd love to see that. Uh, see if it actually represents him. Um, but Crimson Peak and Pacific Rim were both fairly divisive. Uh, and there was a five-year gap between Hellboy 2 and Pacific Rim, which is insane to me. And in that time, he was fighting very, very hard to make Hellboy 3. He thought that that was the most and, relevant uh, time. And at the Mountains of Madness. And the Mountains of Madness was – he had Tom Cruise behind it. He had, yep. like, money and a star and he had everything. And I think that there was a couple things that broke it apart, but one of it was moving it down to PG-13. He just didn't want yeah. to do. Um, and at the Mountains of Madness, I love said, it. No! Said. Yeah, At the Mountains Madness is not my favorite H.P. Lovecraft story. Probably would have been my favorite H.P. Lovecraft movie. It, it's <laughs> very true. Yeah, I, I, he has such a love and an admiration for monsters. I would love to see somebody who has such a great technical grasp of what monsters are mixed with uh, a, you know, storyteller's bravado. Because usually we, we get like adaptations that are either like cool monsters, but kind of broken as stories or cool stories, but the monsters aren't that great. Yeah. Um, we don't usually get a Lovecraft big monster movie that actually like all the pieces fit together. He could have done something amazing with that. And Pacific Rim is a movie I love because it, it, it feels like a movie I would have loved as a child. It feels like yeah. this raw, almost kids movie in a way that like it made, it, I only gain appreciation more from as the years go on because like I'm seeing shit like the new Jurassic World was so mean and so cruel to its characters and cruel to well, women. And the CGI had no weight to it. I think that that's always the complaint about um, I think monster CGI's. Uh, that it, it feels like an animated movie in a lot of respects, and and not every director gets it right. And his movies, whether it's like Hellboy Two, which the the monsters get really big, or Pacific Rim, like that daytime monster uh, appearing at the beginning of a, a Pacific Rim coming out of the water, that that feels like a fucking monster that's coming out of the water to attack San Francisco. It doesn't feel like a drawing of a monster. And even Jurassic World, with its probably much bigger budget. It's, a lot of times it just feels so light and CGI-y in a way that he, he's so good at not just creating monster designs, but presenting them in a way that makes them feel like they're actually in the settings that he's presenting. Real things in real environments. Um, yeah. I, and I love Pacific Rim for having bringing this sort of a big kaiju movie and doing the American twist on it, but actually yep. leaning into the sort of gleeful fun that a lot of Japanese movies have about kaiju movies. Yeah. It felt like it had the tone of a Godzilla movie, some of the silliness of a Godzilla movie. I, I just don't know why anybody wouldn't wouldn't love that movie if you like any sort of big, brash monster movie, but some people hate it. And here, here's what I also say about Del Toro that most people don't say about directors anymore because everyone wants directors to branch out. Like, I, I want to see this person's this movie. Don't just keep doing the same thing every time to diminishing results. And I guess if Del Toro, I'm so glad I've, that he never, like, 
went and made like a romantic comedy or like some sort of like uh, military drama or uh, like all these other guys did that made these fantastical movies that started in horror. Like he just is, he just is like, oh, I'm going to keep doing monster movies forever and I'm going to make them uh, scary and I'm going to make them actiony and I'm going to make kaiju movies and I'm going to make superhero movies. But like, I like monsters. So I'm just going to keep making monster movies and I hope that's fine with all of you. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why Devil's Backbone didn't connect to me is like, I didn't really want to see his sixth sense. Because I don't really like the – I've told you before, like, ghosts in general is not a great genre for me for horror. Like, they have to be really good. And while I like Devil's Backbone, it didn't – it's the it's the only movie of his I've seen, uh, even from – even though it's better than Mimic, that didn't feel like a Del Toro movie. It just felt like a, a pretty good ghost story to me. I think, I think uh, Devil's Backbone is a movie that I love. I think it feels like a Del Toro movie, but more in terms of how he depicts characters in his beautiful lush period sets, um, in how he um, – his view of humanity – allows for there to be these massive villains but also this like sense of compassion and like the idea that you can connect with monsters um more sometimes than you can connect with people i I think i think it feels um very much like a del toro movie but just doesn't have a typical monster in the basement it has a, a ghost um, but yeah, even the ghost yeah. is amazing looking. It looks like it is. his Crimson Peak sort of feels like a continuation of that sort of movie about this, like, people dealing with the aftermath of tragedy in this world, in this one location that's sort of slinking away and falling apart. I feel like uh, he makes, sometimes he makes, like, spiritual sequels to movies he's already made. And Crimson Peak is sort of his sequel to, to Devil's Backbone. I hope you like Crimson Peak more than Devil's Backbone. I, I like to, so I don't want to say I don't like Devil's Backbone. Uh, mainly because I just I can't handle the uh, the letters. My mailbox is full. Like, please don't send me angry letters about Devil's Backbone. But uh, yeah, I, so I like it. I just it's just not exactly what I want from Del Toro because he is so goddamn good at this specific thing that there was a part of me that's like I never want him to make a mature movie. You know, I just want to see monsters and I want to see monsters in different contexts and never stop doing that. Please don't stop doing that, Del Toro. No one else is doing it for the love of God. How dare you stop? Uh, and this is a movie where, you know, he calls it his first adult movie. I would say the same thing uh, of the movies I've seen of his. Um, you know, it's close to, I would say Devil's Backbone, even though it's about children, is, is a pretty adult movie. But this feels like a movie where he is taking a Somewhat of a leap from a thematic standpoint or a tone standpoint, maybe not a thematic standpoint, uh, but it's still keeping that Del Toro monster uh, crux at the center. And it's so good. And I actually – I'm actually going to say, Peter, I think I think this is my favorite Del Toro movie. I think it's, it's, it's up there with Pan's Labyrinth for me, but this may be my favorite. Like I just – I fucking loved this movie. Um, and I can't wait to talk about some of the specific moments. I know we're not going to get to a lot because it's it's over two hours. It's very dense. Every scene is has something great to talk about. So I feel like I should just apologize. We should just apologize. Like there's probably another two hours of thoughts that we would have on this movie that we're not going to get to. But if you haven't seen it, go see it because – 
Uh, it's it's so goddamn good. Yeah, this is the la- last chance to bail. Like we were talking about, this is an extension of what he has done before, but it is definitely a risk. Um, yeah, this is the sort of movie that easily could have been laughed out of theaters. Uh, it is about a mute woman falls in love with a fish man as she's working at a uh, government. Uh, facility the fish man does not have uh the capability for human speech he can make screeches and squawks and such uh when he's in pain or he's he's frightened or he's he's trying to be threatening but he doesn't really uh they both are um feeding into this plot that Guillermo del Toro, this theme that Guillermo del Toro loves to pull on, which is brokenness in people and the idea that people are aliens or others in a world. And um He's he's a man that uh, didn't just like the monsters because he thought they were cool and they're metal, but he loved the monsters because he, um, he loved them. He loved them because he loved. He them. loved them. He had a sense of uh, of sympathy for them. He had uh, a sense of of belonging to them, uh, and that they were these like orphans of the world, and he could be a brother, a friend, a parent to them. That's why he is so good at making. What is probably a really tough concept on paper. This woman falls in love with a fish man because they don't they don't make him like fucking Ron Perlman in Beauty and the Beast like monster. It's not like this is a dude who is an, uh, uh, you know, imposing presence with who is charismatic and is giving off the vibe of like I am a sexual being with just a with, with a lion's head on it. Like he does a great job of making this a true, like, fish man monster. Um, he's got some good abs, but besides that, like, he doesn't he doesn't try to add humanity to his monster so that anyone watching in a the theater can, from a, from a purely, like, attractive level, like, go, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fish man, but it's a, it's like a man fish man that is an attractive fish man for, for a fish man still, but he, he's a good looking fish man. Like, anyone can see that. He makes him pure, like, monster with, like, scary noises and weird stuff that comes out of him. These strange and, like, eyelids odd, that, eyelids, yeah, there's no, there's none of that, like, humanizing, um, I work because the I work really helps humanize a lot of monsters, and he like he goes all out and like, nope, these are fucked up alien eyes, <laughs> not human, uh, blah blah blah, and so he, he sells all that so well, and then still is able to tell a story where everything that happens feels, um, not just not just like true to what's going on, on the screen, not just true to the character, not that you can understand why Sally Hawkins' character would fall in love with him, but also like truly like romantic. In the sense that you are swept up in their love story. I think that's something we're going to end up talking about a lot this month, uh, especially when we talk about Spring, uh, which is which is which has a lot more of a, uh, a humanized monster in, in that movie, but about making them root for their romance. And that, that I think, is the hardest trick that he could have pulled off, because I think it would easy to make this movie and say, yeah, I can see why Sally Hawkins would fall in love with the fish man, but to actually make the audience root for them to be together at the end, that's a that's a huge trick. That That is a true magic trick, and he does it, and I think that's what elevates this movie from 
it's a good del toro movie too this is like a true masterpiece pretty easy to make the jump with him especially because he's not a cynic he's a romantic he's a, he's an earnest romantic who truly believes in the idea that human decent humans uh, can come to an understanding, can decent humans can uh, not judge one another, embrace other, other people's weirdness, other, what what the otherness of others. It's funny how there's like little jokes in the middle of the movie. It's like Del Toro being like, yes, I get it. It's funny. I'm going to make my jokes here. And then I need you guys to be on yeah. board for the second half. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and it's not done with a sort of like, uh, you know, I bet you you would judge him, you know, society. It's recognizing that it is a strange thing, but it's fully believes in the the romance, which is uh, something that we need in order to believe in it as well. Yeah, he does that very well. And I think he he also is able to help elevate the romance we see on screen with the romances we don't see on screen. Uh, Two very particular ones. Uh, which is Michael Shannon and his relationship with his wife. Uh, let's 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 start there. Um, so Michael Shannon uh, is a uh, we said a monster. He starts to have a little crush on Sally Hawkins because he likes the idea of someone that can't talk to him. That's a woman. Uh, says that to her at one point, and then goes home, has sex with his wife, and keeps telling her not to talk during it. Obviously, fantasizing about a world where. Uh, his wife uh, has no no means of communication that he can understand. Obviously, Sally Hawkins can communicate, uh, but but he doesn't know uh, doesn't know sign language. So, and and also in this, and this is when I said there's like two unique uh, styles of the way that he portrays the '60s. Everything else is Bioshocky, and but but Michael Shannon's life is is. It's so when he, whether he's shopping for cars, whether he's at his house, it's all leave it to Beaver. It's bright colors. It's so clean, um, and then you just see kind of this like grotesqueness to the way that he views his relationships. So that works. That works as a really good cross balance to what Sally Hawkins has going with the fish man. So Michael Shannon, uh, continuing his years long uh, charity effort of donating one fucked up performance to every single tour director. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's, he, I mean, he does. That was his community service by a judge in the, in the nineties, I believe <laughs> Com- like committed a manslaughter. And they're like, no jail time, but you got to really be fucked up in all of my favorite director's movies <laughs> for the next 30 years. He's been a crazy person for Jeff Nichols multiple times. Like he was a crazy person for Zack Snyder in uh, man of steel. He but is- he's a human crazy person for Jeff Nichols. Jeff Nichols is like, yeah, be crazy, but like be like a dad. And everyone else is like, no, just, just fuck everyone up all the time. <laughs> and and uh, he's uh, he's amazing in uh, all the Jeff Nichols movies. Uh, he is amazing. And it, those are the movies that really made me fall in love with him. And he's usually oh, yeah. the best part of not great movies. Um, he's like, one of my favorite. I mean, he's just one of my favorite actors. Period. Yeah. Like My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? The Herzog movie is a terrible movie. Um, but he's so good in it. Like the dialogue is shit. Like the whole crux of the movie is shit. It's just a broken movie. And yet he is, um, this like thing you can't look away from the entire movie. He's easily the best part of it. And, uh, so it is, there is a 
pure joy to getting to see him be this like unhinged psychopath but to see that unhinged psychopath used to um such wonderful social effect in this movie yeah because he's supposed to be this ambitious goal-driven ex-military guy with the perfect wife and the perfect kids and like it's uh he's supposed to be a fully complete man and yet he doesn't realize how broken he is I actually think he almost kind of does, but he he's definitely the stand-in for America, which I think was Del Toro almost getting pissed that people didn't get the – that Pan's Labyrinth was about to be uh, – was, was supposed to be on Mount America. I forget. There was actually a critic who said that and it felt like that they then put Michael Shannon as like, no, you're, you're G.I. Joe. You are America and this is how like broken and disfigured you are um, – if you die – like on the outside, you're great and everyone loves you and you have everything that you need. But you get a, under that surface and you are just a, a mountain of fucked up monsterism. So, he – when he loses two fingers and then he keeps them on, <laughs> even after they are dying, they smell, they're killing him. He is definitely getting like yeah. some sort of he's, infection that's transferring from the gangrenous black fingers. Yeah, he's knocking back those painkillers. Yeah, not having a great time. Uh, full Shannon no. mode in the second half of the movie. And he he's a broken man that he thinks if he loses these fingers or if he doesn't perform both of those actions, both in his career and in his physical being, uh, he's going to be thrown out with the trash. He's not going to be a full person anymore. Uh, which is ultimately all he has going for him is that, like, he is the full person that society expects of him and will give him as many opportunities as he can to make sure that he wins. But he is in this, like, uh, between a rock and a hard place in the third act where he needs to be a performer, he needs to go do this thing, or he is going to be kicked down with the others, with the dirt. So there's room for other, you know, white dudes at the top. There's room for other yeah. white straight men, I should clarify, at the top. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. I love that scene where uh, Nick Searcy, as the general, is like – because he kind of pleads. He's like, look, I'm going to find the fish man. But obviously, we've known each other for 15 years. Have I ever not gotten the job done? So I'm going to do everything I can. If I can't, it's one blot on my record. We're, we'll, we'll figure this out. And Nick Searcy is like – uh, no. Uh, how about instead I destroy your life, I throw you into an alternate universe that's nothing but pain for you. I don't care about the 15 years of good service you've done. You fuck this up, you're done. Forever. I'm gonna ruin everything about you. I think he almost even implies that he's gonna kill him. He's just like, no, this this is it. And it, it, kind, of, it kind of is a, you know, quick meta-commentary on, like, how, where, where toxic men come like this come from that is it's not just that he is like this monster that created himself it's that if you look at who he's reporting to and the structure that he's working with nick cersei is also a uh a terrible (laughs) monstrous man and how but and who's his boss and how you can you can almost see how someone could could kind of twist himself into this monster when he's trying to please other monsters. Michael Stuhlbarg is theater actor that I think the the, the Coens discovered basically, yeah. or at least blew serious up man. Serious Man. They blew him up. He, I think he'd done a couple things before, but uh, he's been in so much great shit. He's amazing in Fargo. I've heard he's really good in uh, Call Me By Your Name, which I haven't seen yet, but I've heard he's great. I bet he is. He's this uh, fantastic actor who can really give you uh, a sense of um, 
sensitivity and a sense that you uh, know him almost. Mm-hmm. Yet uh, he is also <laughs> like he can play a fucker. Like he can play a real a real turd. In the movie, he's, he's a Russian agent who's being positioned to also steal the um, the fish man and being given the same options, basically. Like you either need to get us what we need out of this thing or you need to kill it. Yeah, because they say uh, we don't care about us. Um, his his like uh, handler says we we're not concerned about learning things about the fish man. We're just concerned that the Americans don't. Yes, which is a, 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 you know one of the many great Cold War moments in the movie that like really accurately understood what the cold war was about and what yep. the sort of like uh, give and take of, of the war was uh so michael stuhlbarg in the movie he is being hammed in by this soviet system that's also you know white straight men not westerners but white straight men that are hammering in in him this like dehumanization of of, of uh you know not quite fascism in a literal sense but like a, uh, a true evil. They're trying to hammer him into an evil shape that they can make work. And when he fails them, they go to kill him. That combined with Michael Shannon when he shows up there to kill the agents that are killing him so that he can find the information. That does, as long as we just talked about Shannon, that is my favorite line of the movie. I, can you? I'm just curious if you know what I'm talking about during the scene where, where uh, Shannon... Uh, Shannon interrogates uh, Stuhlbarg. Oh, that that scene is just like the bottle scene in Pad's Labyrinth. When yeah, uh, it, it just like one act of horrific violence in the movie that you will be thinking about for a long time after. Basically, Stuhlbarg gets a bullet through his both of his cheeks, and then Michael Shannon puts his fucking finger in the hole to drag him. That part's great. That scene is so. Uh, and the movie hasn't been very like uh, violent, even for a Del Toro movie. So like, he just has this one scene of like. Visceral, upsetting violence. But before that, when uh, Stuhlbarg is happy to see Shannon for killing the Russians, he's like, "Oh, thank God you're here." And Michael Shannon has the. Th- this is why you get Shannon because it is the best, terrifying and funny line delivery you could ever ask for. And I'm gonna butcher the delivery, but there he's like, he just is like, "You were speaking Russian, Bob." <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, it's the best. I I just thought of that line over and over in my head because it is just so good. He, he is so loud and over the top and angry and, like, also, like – wants to prove a point because they have like a professional competition because he's he's trying to keep the monster alive and and shannon's like i don't care just cut him open and find the stuff i get to go home and, and live my life so it's it's so good it's not just anger and um all the stuff it's also him like getting the last word in their little office feud where it's like oh who's laughing now bob that's <laughs> great that's so it is good. so it's so petty but it's uh it, it, it's totally in the character who's this guy who takes every last concession he can get like he doesn't let anybody have fucking anything like even yep. when people are cooperating with him he like still feels the need to put them down um the yeah. only people he doesn't talk like that to. He talks to his wife shittily. He's not sweet with his kids. The only people that he he talks shitty to, he doesn't talk shitty to, are, is the general. And his tone with the general is more like, please do not destroy my world. But it's, it's the same thing. He, he sees himself as above everyone else. And the only person that's really above him in the movie is the general. So when he talks to the general, 
he's not trying to talk to him like a supervisor. He's trying to talk to him like like he's trying to be like, we're a team. We're on the same level. We think the same. We're a team. And it's, it's a great reversal for every how he treats everyone else in his life because the general's like, no, just like everyone's a bug to you, you are a bug to me. I do want to point out something about Guillermo del Toro's humanism. And it's so refreshing in this era where it's so easy to just be cynical and just like burn everything down. This is a truly evil villain. Like a real piece of shit, right? Even he gets a few moments where you're like, hey, bud, you could be one of the heroes in the movie. He gets a few, he gets a, like when the general just shits all over him and he looks at himself in the mirror, you're like, you kind of feel bad for him because he got like squished like a bug. And Del Toro wants you to feel bad for him. Like this, this dude is now in this impossible position and like he's just been put in this, he's been run since he was whatever, 18. Like as soon as he was in, he was joined the military, he's just been like run from like shitty assignment to shitty assignment where he just has to keep doing what the military tells him to or they'll smash him down. And, yeah. and, and he wants you to have some sympathy for him. And then as soon as he decides that he's giving up that chance at humanity, the, the movie is like, well... Not everybody can be redeemed. Well, and it's also something that people talk about a lot as we're kind of talking about, uh, you know, the the rampant like harassment and, and abuse of women in our culture and stuff like that. That like you can be a victim of a bad system and still be a terrible person. Yes, like you you can you can be. Um, you can be a victim of the patriarchy that has taught you how to view, for example, like women in a certain way that um, that is – or you can be a victim of of a racist society that's taught you how to view people that uh, have different skin color than you or um, differently and still that, that can exist along with – but you are still a fucking – rapist or you are still a fucking racist or any any go down the line on any of that stuff and this that is that moment where michael shannon is a victim in a lot of ways of the same and you know it is a victim of this this american um exceptionalism but except instead of exceptionalism in that term it's they're accepting everyone yeah uh, that's so he's he's a victim of that and he's tried to live up to that in the best way he knows how while still being a unrepentant monster who uh is a through and through evil person yes and i i think that it's uh easy to get caught up in his like deranged like uh quest to destroy this romance uh, and like wanting to see just punishment come down on him, but like Del Toro does not. Isn't he's a humanist? He thinks he thinks that a lot of people, even the most evil people, can turn themselves around. And like he's pointing out, like people are given chances to be humble yeah. and like look, do some self examination. And evil people, the reason they're evil is because they never look at that sort of humbling moment as a chance to turn their life away uh, turn their life around they view it as a chance to double down on their their awful actions so i i I can't think of a movie that we need more now than a movie like this that has just such a love for humanity but an understanding that like there is true villainy in the world and it will smash if anything that is an other from its vision so let's let's use that to pivot because we we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fast approach the end of this, and there's we, we need to talk about the other pieces to this to this puzzle. Uh, we'll we'll save some more. Um, we'll save uh, Doug Jones and Sally Hawkins for the end because I want to talk about my favorite character in the movie, and I would say the best performance by an actor who just gives best performances. 
Uh, and that's uh, Richard Jenkins' character in this movie. Uh, he – it is an amazing performance for someone that you get so used to giving amazing performances that it, it feels like so hyperbolic to say, no, this is his best performance. But I, I think it is and the, the, the couple times that I got choked up in this movie was his reaction to, to what was going on with, with uh, Sally. You know, because so his character is clearly a closeted gay man in the 60s. He talks a lot about how he wishes he would have had sex more when he was younger, that he's becoming old. He doesn't have much time left and he never got to experience his life in the way that, you know, as a as a out proud person, just actually being able to live his life. And that's why he, you know, he, he goes on boards with Sally's plan, even though he doesn't really want to or he's scared about it because he sees in her a chance to live her live her, her true self in a way that he had. And the way that he reacts to that with like, like just being overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment in that seeing his friend happy and being able to live vicariously through her but also like the extreme sadness of of what he missed out on based on the society and the culture and everything else that he lived in like it it was overwhelming for me uh, on a couple occasions and the fact that he's able to play all of that all of that moment um all of those feelings, all those emotions uh, in, in a couple different scenes in this movie is, is truly astonishing. Like, he's probably not going to get nominated for an Academy Award or, you know, or anything like that for this movie that has, like, Michael Shannon and chewing scenery and Sally Hawkins being so wonderful and Doug Jones, like, humanizing a non-human creature. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he is, like, getting all the accolades and I just didn't notice. But I, I think Jenkins is is the is the standout in a cast of standouts. Uh, I completely agree that he is this warm, humanized figure, but he doesn't just play it off as... He, he, he never falls back on gay stereotypes, which is great, because if I'm correct, I believe Richard Jenkins is a straight man. Um, he yeah. doesn't fall back on any gay stereotypes. He just... Except for that he likes musicals, but that's him, something him and Sally Hawkins have in common. Um, but they, uh, they, they have this sort of beautiful friendship. And I think that that's actually uh, one of my favorite things about the movie. If you compare this to a lot of other rom-coms, it starts off and the woman is absolutely alone and absolutely miserable. Uh, you know, she might have a friend that keeps her from being alone and miserable, but, like, she's generally not happy. Something, like, she, she's, like, incomplete without a man. And this movie sort of plays with that idea that, like, uh, it sort of engages with that idea that rom-coms have, that, like, women are incomplete without men. The idea of it is that, like, she's not actually incomplete. She starts the movie, actually, she's kind of happy. Like, she's, she doesn't seem to hate her job. She's slow getting into work, but she has a friend that she likes. Yeah, Octavia Spencer's great in this as well. Like, and they have a fun... Like, yeah, she seems satisfied. Yeah, she seems... So resigned. Yeah, satisfied or resigned. But she's smiling a lot. Like, they, they don't play yeah. her off as this, like, miserablest character no. who needs a man to turn her life around. They, and they play her as someone who sees herself as incomplete, but she's like... She, she's accepted it. And she sees, she sees another incomplete person in Richard Jenkins and is like, this is a way that you can exist and this is, this is how you can be happy in that, even acknowledging that she's, she's missing something. Yes, and then when she meets the the creature, uh, it's not that 
he uh, completes her. She is a full person. It's that she he yeah. makes her feel more complete. It's that they there's something beautiful and extra in life that she has found, like a new way that that this person can appreciate everything about her that's that makes her her, that makes her an other. Everything about that is something that he either doesn't notice or loves. It's a good transition because um, the reason why th- their dynamic with Sally works so well, they seem like two sides of the same coin. I don't want to move past the point of like that we get so used to an actor delivering these amazing performances that we're not able to go. Oh, wait. It's, yeah. No, he's great. He's great. He's great. <laughs> this is exceptionally this is, good. This is like, yeah, this is all timer. This is the best performance from one of our best actors. It's, it's worth noting because I feel like people are going to watch this and notice all the other stuff that they should notice. And he's going to get left behind. And maybe again, maybe that's, that's wrong, but it just – it was so humanizing to everything else going around. And, man, I can't think of another movie where there's just, like, someone who I want to – recently where I just want to, like – I want to give him a hug. Like, he was just – everything about him was just, like, so real in so many different ways. And uh, and that can be hard to do sometimes in a, in a fantastical movie such as this. He's not doing that thing that – Another, you know, way to compare it to a rom-com or something. He's not doing the gay best friend thing where he's like, you go get yourself a, a girlfriend. Like, you know, I'm just your sassy gay best friend who's just telling you, uh, you know, the way of the world. And I'm just coming up with, you know, funny quips left and right. Like, they have a genuine human friendship and they seem to support each other in ways that, like, they don't even realize, which makes it even more beautiful. Like, there's things well, yeah. about those two together that, that like, are unsp- obviously unspoken, but, like, even more, uh, like, unspoken that, like, they don't even realize that, like, the little the little thing with them going to the cake sh- the pie shop yeah like she doesn't necessarily like know that she's doing a good thing by being her his buddy when he goes on those little escapades but like she at least realized she's like well i'm going with my friend and that's that well one and one of the reasons too he can't be a gay stereotype is because he can't be like himself like yes. i'm not saying that he would be a gay stereotype but that's also the point is that like you know he he has he has his own little like subplot of like him having having a crush on this guy that uh, that works at this pie shop. The second that he kind of implies that you know it's very innocuous too. Like he's just like oh we should spend more time together. This is right after the same guy like basically kick kick some black people out of the store. He's like uh no we we don't need to spend time together and you should never come in here again. How dare you? This is a family place. And it's just like even like that innocent of an act to be like i'd like to get to know you better but you like nothing overt like that was that was enough to like destroy this thing that he had clearly invested a lot of time in based on how many pies are in his fridge (laughs) it's a lot of pies i'm not trying to laugh at the situation but like the fridge is empty it's just pie it's just slices of pie because the pie isn't very good, apparently. That is showing you also the the little bit of uh, almost magical realism that Del Toro is pulling from. Almost magical realism. Yeah. Um, where he's he like uh, nobody would keep that much pie in his fridge, but it's a great joke. Or like how the room fills with water when you know, oh, the, yeah. the beautiful. That moment. was a stressful scene for me. I'll tell you what, beautiful moment. Well, the scene is room fills with water so that they can have a different sort of lovemaking on. On Fishman's terms, they'd already, you know, had some sex in the bathtub, but she plugs the door with a towel 
um, and just lets everything overflow until the room is filled with water leaking on the theater. As someone who recently had some leaking issues in my bathroom, it was a very stressful scene for me, Peter. Were you growing leaks in your bathroom? Well, no, but we had – yeah, we had an issue with our bathtub. Mm-hmm. I thought I told you about this, but I was like – you filled your bathtub with with the vegetable leak. That's what that's that's where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll leave it in. We'll sort do it live. Sort of like. Um, I get it. Well, what I'm saying is that I'm like, look, <laughs> I get that you want to have a, a super special night with with your best guy. Yeah. But like, you shouldn't play around with just like bathroom leaks. Yeah. Either either the the vegetable or actual leaks that go right into your subfloor. It's going to cause a lot of problems and especially for the theater right below you. I think it was an irresponsible message in the middle of a very good movie. If you're not on board with this being sort of a fantasy movie and allegory yeah. movie oh, that's you're not out at that literal, point. You have to be like, "Wait, this is the most selfish thing anyone's ever done." <laughs> yeah, you really have to do it. And they they have those fairy tale sequences. I love the little uh, song and dance uh, number that she imagines how she would like to express himself to say "I love you" before she is going to leave him. Where they have this quick like. Uh, you know, 30s musical dance number, and she she's singing to the fish man. Uh, that's that's great. I I love all the the magical realism. I mean, it works as a it's it's a it's it's a somewhat grounded fairy tale in that it um it doesn't skimp on the evilness of the bad guys and commentary and stuff like that. But I mean, adult fairy tales is such a rare genre, but it's one I usually really like. Yeah, um, it, it just takes – I think it takes a little bit of magic, a little bit of balance for it to work for me. This movie just works really well because I think every ask that it makes of you is pretty reasonable and it's done for the sense of charm and beauty that it's trying to pass off. It's it's done as like a poetic flourish as opposed to like, we just wanted some weird shit to happen in this movie, which is like how a lot of fantasy movies can come across. Um, and they do tell you they, – they tell you if you were like – Okay, fine. I buy it. But how are they fucking? They explain how they're fucking. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that is the other thing about uh, Del Toro is that he's not just in love with monsters as these outsiders or whatever. He also yeah. loves the anatomy of them. That's why his monsters are so well designed. He loves every yeah. tiny detail of them. And the idea that he's like, well, the penis isn't exposed. It, uh, it sort of crack opens, the slit opens, then the penis folds out. Like, even he thought of that, like, partially in the section I mentioned earlier that is about um, the nitty-gritty of it being kind yeah. of funny to Richard Jenkins and uh, Octavia Spencer. But they're on board because, like, they see this person in true love. And yeah. But, but they, they, meet, I mean, they, they have questions. Man. Yeah. Like... And and as the audience, because the first time that it's clear that they have sex, like they just – and this is on the posters too. They just, they do a lot of hugging and my guess is that's because like no MPAA rating was going to be like, no, you're not doing <laughs> even one thrust with the fish man, not for an R. He has them like hug and eventually um, uh, the fish man becomes bioluminescent uh, at certain points uh, when it's a real good hug. Uh, but – I'll, I'll admit as an audience member, it's like, well, I've seen – he's not wearing fish clothes, not wearing amphibian man clothes. What What is going on? Is it just the hugs? Is it one of those spiritual things? Oh, like, it's like an like avatar av- thing. Yeah, like an avatar. That's <laughs> what I'm like. It's like an avatar thing. And then like the next scene, Octavia Spencer's like, does he have a thing? I, I saw it. There's no thing. And she's like, mimes how the dick comes out of him. And he's like, 
Oh, and Octave Spencer has that great line where it's like, even a fish man has a, is a, has a sneaky penis or something like that, <laughs> you know? Yes. So let's talk about the ending quick and then we'll wrap this up. I really want to talk about two things about the ending. Uh, the first thing is that it has one of my favorite little tropes in movies where uh, the the villains of the piece get confirmation that they were wrong about everything right before they're killed. It <laughs> doesn't happen in that many movies. I don't have a list uh, of examples. But Michael Shannon shoots the fish man, thinks he's done it all. He's destroyed himself. He's destroyed everything in his life to just fucking kill this fish man because who cares? I don't feel anything anyways about my wife and my family. My job's fucked. I know where I stand in the I just I just want to I just want to destroy this fish man so that he doesn't win. Fish man uh he shoots everyone that he can. Fish man puts uh puts his hand over his heart, heals himself, and Michael Shannon goes, "Ah shit. You are a god." Yeah. Which is what people thought he was and then he gets uh knocked the fuck out, uh presumably dead. And I I love that. Yeah, he gets his throat slashed. Um, which is a, a great, oh, yeah. it's a great way to, yeah. to kill him because then um, he's just kind of has to like sit and watch. I wish I wish there was a list of that because I just I love that like oh shit I was completely wrong the the, <laughs> the like last second epiphany but like way too late yeah exactly that is also a great like that feels like it's very in Guillermo del Toro's wheelhouse the idea that like like yeah he recognized that he was wrong but you know too late. When you see someone as villainous as this, you want him to get his just desserts. You want some comeuppance. And the fact that he didn't just get killed by a monster or something like that, like he didn't just lose, but he also, his last dying thought is that he was completely wrong about like his life choices. He lost and, on every level. Yeah. He just, he like, but he doesn't even have time to do anything with that. It's just like, the, he, he, he's not going down going, oh, fuck you, fish monster. You, 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 win, you won. I hate you so much. He's going down going, he's going down Joe Bluth style. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really terrific and it's, uh, cathartic to see what we thought was going to be a tragic ending, but Guillermo del Toro can't really he doesn't really like giving us true tragic endings at best he'll give yeah. us um melancholy endings um it's very similar to pan's labyrinth i think it's similar in uh many ways one of which is i think both this and pan's labyrinth have ambiguous endings however i'm pretty sure Guillermo del toro would disagree with me on both of them he at least disagrees with me on pan's labyrinth he thinks for sure she she lives at the end of pan's labyrinth in the fantasy world her body dies but she gets to live in a better world or at least a more wonderful world in this i i the uh i think Guillermo del toro would say yes she she survived so that's you know I, I don't think this is ambiguous based on who directed it like i i think you're supposed to get the fairy tale ending of because how do fairy tales end right they like especially in this this way be because i'm inundated with with princess related stuff like the end of the movies is the uh the the fairy tales about princesses especially is that they're a princess and they now go live with the princess kingdom and that's this yeah, this is uh, one of the ravages of not being able to take notes, but Richard Jenkins, who frames the movie with a, a narration, gives a uh, – says a line that says, like, it's basically like, 
he imagines she went down there, but he doesn't know for sure. And like, yeah. and it's, it's, we're unsure. But we saw it seeing, on screen. But we don't know if we're seeing it on screen. Richard Jenkins is the one telling us the story. Richard, the whole movie is from Richard Jenkins' perspective on how yeah. he heard details and what people told him. So I think it is a somewhat ambiguous ending, but I 100% think, just like with Pan's Labyrinth, you know, extra textual information. I think that Guillermo del Toro would say it's not. It's a happy ending. Um, yeah. She gets to be a princess in the underwater kingdom, and she was actually a princess the whole time. Like, and I, I hope that doesn't sound reductive, but like, it is a fairy tale that he's telling, and that that's the fairy tale ending, right? That's the it tur- uh, It's not just that. It's not just that he she finds her prince, but she was a princess the whole time, and like, and I, the reason I don't think it's ambiguous, even even with Richard Jenkins doing it. Um, is because like she has those weird three slits on her throat her entire movie. It means it's setting up that it might be real. It doesn't mean that it's definitely real. She just got her throat fucked up as a kid. Yeah, but on both sides, like gills. I don't know. I like it. It, it just kind of works as like, oh. I also think that I can see why people interpreted it as yeah. He just he you know the fish man is definitely real, but maybe. She he just put, brought her in the water and she maybe Richard maybe Richard Jenkins is like this is what I this is what I've decided happened, um, but I obviously wasn't there. I get I get it. You're right. He he can't also be like I lost my friend, just yeah. straight up lost my friend. He needs to be like I lost my friend who's now living a beautiful life under the sea. Thank you so much, Guillermo del Toro, for not playing <laughs> Beyond the Sea in this movie. Uh, um, I, I could have used some under the sea, though. Like, if at one point, Doug Jones doesn't just make noises, but goes, the seaweed is always greener. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it would have ended. I would have been fine with that, too. Uh, yeah, you're right. This movie needed more steel drums. Need some Alan Menken. <laughs> the Manx. Um, yeah, I, but yeah, it, it needs some Mancus in, the, in there. Uh, have you seen the movie Brazil? Yeah, it's like so, one of my favorite movies. Okay, good. Um, I figured it was, but we've never done the show. Um, this is a very much a Brazil ending where it, uh, it kind of, just like Pan's Labyrinth as well, it kind of does not matter if it's real or not. If the character believes it's real, the person has escaped from fascist tormentors uh, you know, one way giving or the up other. their body. But in their, their head, the, the freest space you have... In your in your dreamland, you're free. Well, so and also that also fits with another fairy tale trope, which is a lot of these fairy tale movies or fables or whatever end with everyone kind of like leaving it ambiguous. So I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Like Peter Pan's a great example, right? Where um, or Labyrinth, which we covered ex- on this show last month that we've definitely already talked about and probably had a conversation about this where uh, those uh, Wizard of Oz all that's a common fairy tale thing where it's like they get home everything's back to normal these were people that were always like seeped in fantasy to begin with and you're like did it happen was it a dream was it just a kid's imagination who knows and here's where I have since I was a kid to now always come down on those types of fairy tale or story endings like that uh it's it's real i it's it's always more appealing to me why am i watching f- movies to escape to like be like I don't care if Wendy Darling imagined it. You know what's better? Uh, Peter Pan. 
being around, flying, all that shit. Uh, you know what's better than Dorothy? Uh, just getting knocked out by a beam during a tornado? Uh, if she goes to a magical land of Oz, that's better than that. And so so I agree that, like, Del Toro is definitely feeding into the the ambiguous nature of, of that of that type of fairy tale. But for me personally, I will say, you know what's better? She becomes sea princess and keep, keeps fucking the fish man she's in love with. That works better for Yeah, me. yeah I kind of need to believe that she becomes a sea princess, a little mermaid. Uh, I kind of believe that she needs that. This movie is actually, weirdly enough, like a refutation of Little Mermaid. <laughs> Oh yeah, because she's she loses her voice in Little Mermaid. Yeah, it's it's uh it's sort of a creature of the Black Lagoon, Little Mermaid riff, uh, but also uh, about uh, Cold War fascism. <laughs> um, <laughs> Look, a lot of layers. A lot of layers. There's a lot going on. It's why I feel bad about the plot recap. Just oh, and also some smelly, smelly fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say right out. Putting my money down on the table, Peter. I think this movie probably has the smelliest fingers. Um, I can't disagree with you. Um, Good, but, but that's because you watched it in 4D and you smelled. You ran up to the screen and smelled the fingers of every character. Yeah, that usher that walked by put his fingers in my face. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, just to let you know, I don't wipe properly. <laughs> just letting you know, I just left Claim Jumper. That's such a gross way to end. Uh, it's part of my. It's part of my job. Uh, I've been uh, legally signed into a contract that says I can't wash my hand. This, this my left hand anymore. <laughs> as I walk through. Uh, I'm so glad this is leaving the AMC family next week as we get a new movie, so I can finally wash this hand. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think this is a good movie. It's so pretty. This is wonderful. It's definitely. It's not my favorite. Uh, Del Toro movie, it's top two, three. It's Del Toro making um, an adult movie that still feels as uh, magical as his kid movies, as he would call them. Del Toro, I think for a lot of people, returning to form. But uh, it's him saying a lot of messages he's been saying for a long time. He's just being much more potent and much more direct about them. He, it, you can't hide from this movie's messages the way like you could hide from the environmental messages in Hellboy 2 or or uh this is this is about Spain in in Pan's Labyrinth. Yes, you could be like, oh, this is a historical movie that takes place in a very bad time that's nothing like our own. Oh, bad <laughs> um, fascists. Yeah, you can you do that too. You like, can do that in this, 60s. but it's way more overt about um, what it means to be somebody else and how society treats people who are seen as broken or other. Uh, and I, I, I love that the movie um, treats everybody kind of with a sense of dignity and respect. It's really nice to see one of these genre guys, you know, genre tour, probably my favorite working director, just gets it. He's not making sort of just like um, poppy movies that just like, well, at least I'm working. Um, yeah. He's making movies that are speaking to our times. He still feels so vital and so relevant. Uh, I love that. I love it, too. Like, I'm never going to get sick of it. He could make a hundred movies, and if he's like, okay, so I... Look, I know my last 99 movies were monster movies. Here's what we're doing for number 100. It's going to be a monster movie. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah! <laughs> Another monster movie! But nobody makes oh, movies like him. him. Like, nobody makes no. movies that have uh, a, a 
that are beautiful in terms of their palette, that care about uh, special effects in the way he does. They care yeah. about, you know, a sense of like uh, making these effects real while also making movies that are uh, so human and don't lose their humanity in this, in, in the sense of it. And also movies that aren't just part of another franchise. Like he, he's making these beautiful movies that kind of take everything that I love about movies and, put it into one but still challenges me well it's why it's why he it's why he doesn't get so many movies made because he always has you know he he it's kind of a joke like oh we'll we'll <laughs> yeah I, del toro's attached to that let's i'll wait like i'll wait till literally the movie ends and i'll be like okay they didn't pull it mid mid movie i saw it it's a good movie great but it's because like he always has like a take and he has a vision and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And sometimes studios are like, well, we don't want you to do that. And he's like, okay, well then I'm just not, I'm not going to do my, that thing then. Like I, you know, at the mountains of madness is famous. As I learned from this creature, of the black lagoon, I'm, uh, he had a take. And when the, when the studio said, we don't want that take, just do, just do the normal thing. He's like, no, thank you then. So, uh, and he kind of talks about how he made mistakes on Mimic, where he did, had done Kronos and got to make a big Hollywood movie, and he, you know, just did what they wanted him to do, and how he didn't want to do that anymore. Like he wasn't going to do that again. And so we 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 have a limited amount of Del Toro movies as of right now. All of them are like really good because he is dragging everyone kicking and screaming sometimes getting to make the movies that he wants to make think that movies like mimic and blade 2 are really what taught him uh the importance of you know making movies for yourself the way you want to make them but uh it has definitely it means he's going to make less movies but it means that almost every time he makes a movie they're going to be these like wonderfully crucial unique pieces they can't really yeah. be you could say like they're in this genre Pacific Rim is a kaiju movie, but it doesn't really feel like any other one of those movies. Also, you know what I really like about Pacific Rim? What? Uh, giant dinosaur monsters fighting robots. It's pretty cool. Um, but I think like Blade 2 was a movie that he had to – he came in and he was you know basically replacing another guy and he was like, okay, I'm going to take this whole movie over. I'm going to rewrite the script. I'm going to – he basically – David Goyer admits he's like, oh – Guillermo del Toro didn't like a lot of my choices for the movie, so uh, he just changed them all, and it's a great movie, so I'm happy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and then David Goyer's like, you know what I'm going to make? Blade Trinity, which learns none of those lessons. Uh, yes, I kind of like Blade Trinity. Blade, Blade Trinity's not as good as the first two. Kind of trash, but it's uh, it's at least funny. But Blade Two is a movie where he like figured out the system, and he was like, okay, this is how I manipulate the system to be mine. But it was still within a franchise, so. But like you want to do a creature of the Black Lagoon thing that like was sort of <laughs> reacting to like yeah I wanted to make them fuck when I was a kid <laughs> can we make them fuck and Universal's like no his pitch like, well, probably wasn't great okay <laughs> I hope that he had like a creature of the Black Lagoon action figure and then a Barbie had just walked in and was like banging them together <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, this this is what I want for my creature of the Black Lagoon. It's like the James Cameron dollar sign aliens thing. It's like that. It's like, no words for you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> so anyways, yeah. So uh, yeah, the movie's great. Um, if it's still in theaters when you hear this, go see it. If not, man, here's the best part about our 
our everyone forgets about shit <laughs> so quickly uh, world we live in. That shit's like on Amazon Video and Vudu and iTunes like two months later. Please see it in a theater because uh, it's a beautiful experience. It was really fun to see I mean, it in they theater. probably can't right now. Um, <laughs> That's why we need to record it because it's because it's getting a uh, it's getting a, another rollout halfway through January, so it might still be around. If Who it knows? Is, see it. <laughs> if not, you've missed out forever. Because the only way to see a movie is in a theater, as we said earlier. Uh, Peter, we don't know the schedule yet for the rest of uh, February from an order standpoint, but we can talk about the other three movies that we're going to do this month. They may have guests on them, they may not, but they are going to be. Uh, Spring, which I mentioned before from 2015, uh, like my little sweet baby of that year. Uh, love that movie so much, even if it wasn't my favorite movie. It's my it's my sweet little baby, and I'm so excited to talk about it. And Peter, what are the other two movies we are doing? So, then we're doing uh, King Kong 2005, the Peter Jackson uh, remake. And we're doing uh, the Francis Ford Coppola, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, both controversial high budget monster movies that uh some people love some people hate and will be nostalgia returns for both aaron and i and i love both of those movies when i saw them yeah, when me I was younger uh no idea how they're gonna hold up uh i i feel like they're both gonna hold up pretty well but let's, let's i'm see. pretty i'm pretty confident about king kong because a i like dinosaurs b i like it when dinosaurs fight other things See if those other things are giant. Great. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think I, I I really like that one. I saw it. Excited to revisit it. I actually have more recent experience playing the Xbox 360 game than I do having seen the movie, though. So, uh, so I, I am excited to revisit uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I I haven't seen since high school, which I really when I really liked it. Um, so that's going to be, um, you know, I don't, I don't know, but that's I'm further removed from it. It, as far as I remember, has uh, zero dinosaurs in it. So we'll see. And it'll be especially interesting to return to King Kong after doing uh, Kong Skull Island, or after doing after seeing <laughs> Kong Skull Island, which uh, I saw some people say this actually does what I wanted King Kong to do. Um, really? Yeah. See, I like Kong Skull Island. Uh, let me tell you why. A dinosaurs <laughs> B, dinosaurs fighting other giant things um but uh but i but i think i think jackson's king kong is is better than skull island we'll see we'll see the we'll multi-pressure mind i think uh, jackson's version will have actual characters in it yeah um but it's not gonna have a f- an awesome the best uh samuel jackson line ever uh what? was it samuel jackson i'm gonna skull fuck this island <laughs> I don't think I don't think you get a PG thirteen with that one. Um, maybe it wasn't. No, it was John C. Riley. He says. Oh, he says. He says. Uh, King Kong went down on my dingus. Jesus Christ! That was the part where he's like, he, where he's complaining about the island, and he's like, um, you know, that sounds like birds, but they're not giant spiders that fucking bite your head off. <laughs> Lo- love that. Total total butchering of the line because it's been like six months since I've seen him, but. That gist has ruined the joke for you, and it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I ruined the joke. The joke that you would have heard fresh (laughs) was really good. It was the best. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. I can't believe. Rewind this so you don't hear it. It's not ruined for you. Okay. Um, Good night. So, yeah. Good night. Good luck.
And don't judge people for fucking fish. Never. Well, just in this one particular. Yeah, set in of this fish. context, oh, just to be clear, if someone's fucking a fish, you call the police. That is bestiality. It's wrong. But if it's like a fish Tonight. that's like has the equal intelligence of a human, everybody's doing the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, folks! Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment, tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. I don't know if there's eight members of the band. It feels like it feels like there's at least eight mm-hmm, mm-hmm. jam bands. It's like it's like Dave Matthews. There's just the fiddle guy. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you gotta have you gotta you gotta have everyone on all the instruments, and that's how you jam. Yeah, I have to believe that there's many members of the band Fish because uh, I can't believe that a small group of people could put out so much torment in the world. Do you think that when Fish heard about this movie, they're like? Oh, you guys excited to see the fish fucking movie? They're like, oh, they made a movie. I remember shooting that. And then they went and saw it and they're like, we're not in this at all. They meant a literal fish. Let's do a solid 20 minutes about how confused fish gets about their name. Like, we're having fish for dinner. Like, you're going to eat me? Oh, I'm sorry. I keep making that mistake. Really bad name for our band. Uh, yeah, like uh, somebody tries to get their password over AOL and they're like, are you trying to fish me? <laughs> this is a fishing scam? Hey, yeah. well, man, we just want cool vibes. We're not here to scam you. <laughs> oh, you meant you meant that other fish. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it, dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do, you, do they think that, like, uh, you know, when there's a sign on a door that says "Gone Fishing," people are like, "Oh no!" Do they think they're seeing our show? <laughs> we gotta go, man! Oh man, love, love the new impressions. I love 2018. I love them especially because uh, we definitely know what any member of the band Fish sounds like. There's a person named Trey that they don't want to have beyond the drugs anymore. My knowledge of fish comes from the great podcast Analyze Fish. I would recommend everyone listen to that instead of this. Um, 
<laughs> the uh, 